We're going to continue in our series on the Holy Spirit this evening. And because of that, I'm going to invite you back with me to 1 Corinthians. We'll be in chapter 12 here in a moment. We'll actually be in several other passages as well as we continue this unique series. And this is certainly, I will go ahead and tell you, a unique sort of message. I don't like telling you that there's a message that's going to be part two. I I prefer to have a point and make it and move on. And and, uh, I am just not one that likes to leave you hanging. And I don't intend to necessarily leave you hanging. However, I will go ahead and say that this is part one to another, which will be part two. And that violates everything within the core of my being. I I used to have a a debate professor in particular that used to say, if you can't make a point in 10 minutes, you don't have one. And so if I'm going to tell you that it's going to take two messages, it's going to be a bigger point. And and I want you to say that on the outset, because you're going to have to bear with me just a little bit, because it's a unique message even for me to preach, so I know it's a unique message for you to listen to. Because it's going to be a little bit of an elongated introduction to get us to where we need to go as far as exegesis, because I feel like we need to lay a lot of frameworks when it comes to definitions and understandings of terms when it comes to the topic at hand. Now, I don't want you to be scared off of that. If we are impatient when it comes to doctrine and the study of theology, which is what we're going to do this evening, there are going to be powerful and practical consequences in our lives. Contrary to what many people believe, it is, impos- it is impossible to neglect weighty doctrinal matters without it having an impact on everyday Christianity. You cannot separate matters of weighty doctrine and practical matters of Christianity. And yet some try to divide these things up. They speak of doctrinal Christianity and they speak of practical Christianity as if they are two different ventures into conversations. But what we see is that they are one in the same. What you believe from a doctrinal point of view will ultimately be reflected in how you live. There is no practical Christianity apart from a sound doctrinal Christianity. Now one of the issues we have to grapple with when it comes to doctrine is that we have to think carefully. And so I don't want you to be scared off by me telling you that there's more than one message in this part of the conversation when it comes to the Holy Spirit. I also don't want you to become impatient and and rush forward into the conclusions. I want us to allow Scripture to give us those conclusions. But there is an issue we need to deal with when it comes to the conversation at large that we've been having around the Holy Spirit. And even when it comes to our church in general. One of the issues we have to grapple with in the scriptures is the fact that there is mentions of churches in the New Testament or offices in the church that are mentioned in the New Testament that we no longer recognize. Now, we've been, mem- we've been memorizing some of the passages that talk about them. We recognize, of course, that they're originally given and validity to those offices, but we don't have them. For example, Ephesians 4. Verse 11, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. We would say that there are no apostles and there are no prophets today. Now, why do we say that these offices no longer exist? On what authority do we make that claim? And at the same time, as we talk about prophets and apostles, 
The issue of spiritual gifts goes hand in hand with this matter. There are certain gifts spoken of in the New Testament that we believe were given in conjunction with these offices. So, does the gift of biblical tongues still exist? Does the gift of miracles and healings still exist? Now, I would suggest that the gifts of miracles and healings and tongues went right along with the apostles and prophets. I would suggest that. These were, we could say, sign gifts given for the purpose of pointing to God's judgment on unbelief in Israel and even on God's new revelation. But what I've just introduced to you in a thumbnail is a topic we're going to look at at breadth. Cessationism versus continuationism. And no, I didn't just introduce two 50-cent words because they're hard to say, though I challenge you to try to say that 10 times fast. You'll get, it's like saying Sally sold seashells by the seashore. It's just about that hard. What I just described, though, are these two. What I just gave you an inclination to is that I am a cessationist. Cessationists believe that the sign gifts and the early New Testament offices in the New Testament church have ceased cessationists. Continuationists believe that these same gifts and these offices continue on in the New Testament church. Now the discussion becomes as practical as the differences between charismatic churches and churches like the one we're gathered in this evening. Most charismatics would insist that all of the gifts are still given, and most charismatic would insist that these sign gifts should and do still be performed. And so this doctrinal and theological issue, as you can tell, has pretty practical ramifications for our church. In fact, the issue really is, in some part, the issue of the whole Reformation in general when you look at your church history books. Do we believe in sola scriptura? By that, I mean, can we appeal to the Bible alone? Or can we appeal to other authorities? Do we appeal to the traditions of the church? Do we appeal to our own experiences? Now, sometimes, because we haven't thought through these issues on our own thinking, our thinking can be foggy concerning these issues, and we find some sort of unconscious mixture of the two positions, continuationism and cessationism. You find this actually in my experience in a lot of Baptist churches, an unconscious mixture of the two. People will say, I believe the Bible is sufficient and our sole authority. And they will also say and talk about receiving a word from God. Now these are the very same people will sometimes give a lot of validity and a lot of emphasis to a dream they've had or an experience they've had. So we have to ask ourselves, Is God guiding his people through direct words? Is God giving his people visions and dreams? Is God giving people new revelations? This is all wrapped up in a tricky issue. Cessationism versus continuationism. And this brings us to our study of the Holy Spirit, because it's certainly, in most systematic textbooks, in line with Holy Spirit teaching. We find ourselves in 1 Corinthians once again. And 1 Corinthians has a lot to say on this topic, and so I hope you don't get tired of coming back here. We come to chapter 12 this time in verse 8, and I want you to just introduce to you some of the topics we're discussing here in verse 8. Here's what he says. 
1 Corinthians 2, or 12, verse 8. For to one is given the spirit, uh, the word of wisdom. To another, the word of knowledge by the same spirit. To another, faith by the same spirit. To another, the gifts of healing by the same spirit. To another, the, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, diverse kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But all of these worketh that one and self-same spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. Now, the next time we're together, my intentions, as I've already written the sermon, so I know it will happen, lest the Lord return, is to go through and really divest ourselves fully into those verses at hand. What is he talking about? But tonight I want to introduce a more broad scheme. Are all the spiritual gifts available to us today, or have some of these spiritual gifts ceased? Now, this is not an inconsequential issue. What we believe about spiritual gifts is going to have great impact on our view of church, our view of ministry, and our view of our very walk with God. Do you believe that all the spiritual gifts are still in operation today, or do you believe that some of them have ceased? Now let's begin with definitions, because when it comes to big conversations, it's always best to begin with a definition. So let's define the basic views of spiritual gifts. Number one, defining the basic views of spiritual gifts. And as we try to understand what we believe about this matter as a church, I think it's important that we frame the debate properly. We begin by defining the two basic views that I've already mentioned now in passing in my introduction. And now as I define them, this will be a very simple definition. I understand that there is more breadth than what we can cover this evening. But let's begin by defining what a continuationist is. What is continuationism? The continuationist is a person who believes that the gifts have continued in our present day. They are all being distributed, they say, by the Holy Spirit. They are all still in operation, and they will all continue until Jesus returns. And specifically, they would believe the following— they would believe that the gift of prophecy is still being given. The gift of tongues is still being given. The gift of interpretation of tongues is still being given. And the gift of miracles and healings is still being given. Any particular gift that some have said has ceased, they would say still keeps going, continues a continuationist. Now, what is a cessationist? Well, on the flip hand, a cessationist is someone who would say that some of the gifts are no longer being given. They have ceased. Specifically, a cessationist points to these sign gifts, spiritual gifts, or often referred to as, especially by cessationists, foundational gifts. The foundations were being laid by the works of the apostles and prophets, God was confirming their works through these sign gifts. These were authenticating gifts. In the case of tongues and interpretation of tongues, there was a judgment going on with the respect to the people there. The gift of tongues was a sign gift that they had rejected their Messiah. Judgment was imminent. This was a declaration of truth that was being revealed. In some extreme cases, there are those who actually say all of the spiritual gifts have ceased. If you don't already know, I'm a cessationist, and this church is a cessationist, but we don't take that extreme position. What do we refer to it? Well, we believe that, really, on the other side, 
The gift of prophecy has ceased. The gift of tongues has ceased. The gift of interpretation of tongues has ceased. And the gift of miracles and healings has ceased. Any gift that involves a revelatory purpose has ceased. A cessationist would say they, with the compilation and completion of the canon of Scripture, there is no reason for any new revelation from God. So with the passing of the apostles and the end of the apostolic era and the end of the prophets, there was no longer a need for these sign gifts. What we are called to do now is to contend for the once and for all delivered unto the saints' faith, saints' faith, which is to say the Bible closed in the canon. Any gift that involves new revelation, we would say, is in competition with and fighting against our belief in a closed canon of Scripture. That's a cessationist. Practically speaking, the war between continuationism and cessationism comes down to a war around the Bible. Is the Bible, we would say, sufficient for everything, or do we need something else? Now, there's a lot more to that. So let's go to number two as we kind of frame the debate. Number two, the implications of these two views. Now, what we're working off these definitions, and let's see how this plays out. And there are two giant implications at play here, and I want to emphasize that. The implications of these two views are not small. As if to say, you can hold to one, it doesn't matter, you can all just worship together. No, these implications are major. Here's side number one, I'll call it. If all the gifts are still in operation, and some of us are saying they are not in operation, even if we are well-meaning, we would be found guilty. Despising the use of God-given gifts, if they still exist, would be akin to setting a dangerous precedent in the church, wouldn't it? If they are still in existence, and we are saying they are not in existence, we would be guilty of quenching the Spirit. If they are still in existence, and we are saying they are not in existence, we would be guilty of despising the Spirit. If they are still in existence, and we say no, they are not, we would be guilty of grieving the Spirit. Ultimately, we would be guilty in some way of crippling the ministry of the church. There would be something there that the Holy Spirit has given for our ministry. We are saying it doesn't exist, and we are barring off the Spirit's work. That's not a small thing, is it? That is not a small implication. In fact, that's what most continuationists accuse us of doing. They say, we operate our church in fear of the Holy Spirit and his ministry. They say, we want to stay in our safe zones, they say we're just comfortable with some dry, intellectual approach to God. We should be more emotional. Now, in this way, we are crippling, they say, the Christian life, and we are guilty of robbing other people of enjoying the Spirit's work. We are guilty of denying the Spirit of what He wants to do in our midst. Now, I don't have to tell you, but I will. We don't believe that. <laughs> Otherwise, we wouldn't hold to the position we hold to. We are not afraid of the Holy Spirit and his work. If anything, I'm afraid of attributing to the Holy Spirit something that really hasn't come from him. If I really believed that the gifts were still in function today, I would want to see them fully functioning in our congregation. But I also want to add, I agree with some of what the, cessation, or the continuations have said about cessationists. Namely, 
that we can at times become too comfortable, too dry, and too intellectual in our approach to God. I can agree with that. We must realize that the Christian life is basically supernatural. In fact, there is nothing more supernatural than the fact that there are sinners who became believers and are saved. God took and put people who were dead in sins and made them alive unto himself. That's amazing. There is no church apart from the supernatural activity of God. There is no effective church apart from the supernatural activity of God. We believe in the Holy Spirit. But, side one, if all the gifts are still in 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 operation, and some of us are saying, and we are, that they are not, then even if we are well-meaning, we are guilty, and it's a big implication. But what about side number two, on the other hand? If all the gifts are not still in operation, and we have people attributing to the Holy Spirit what hasn't actually come from him, they would be deceived and deceivers. If at one point these gifts were legitimately operating, but now they have ceased, but we are calling by this name something going on today that really isn't what the Scripture tells us, then we would be lying to ourselves and potentially guilty of lying to others. Now this becomes an important consideration for evaluation. At the very best, what they would be doing is something fleshly, prideful, and arrogant. At the very worst, what they would be doing is something demonic. If I say, if we say, this is from the Holy Spirit, and it's not from the Holy Spirit, That is a serious error. We are attributing to God what hasn't come from God. So either way, we cannot say on this matter, it doesn't matter. It does matter. This is not to say that we don't have genuine believers on both sides of the issue. This is not to say God hasn't used men who stand on both sides. Does that amaze you, by the way? That this could be so serious... And yet, God can use wrong thinking in his amazing grace. Doesn't it amaze you that you can have such an issue with such serious implications, and yet God has actually used people who stand on both sides of that issue? That's amazing. If you wonder how God can do that, the answer is God's mercy. Even our best works require God's mercy to be acceptable. It speaks of the largeness of God's mercy that he can use us, even when we're wrong. God, one person said, has used many crooked sticks to draw a straight line. But we cannot let the fact that crooked sticks draw straight lines cause us to be unwilling to be discerning. We cannot say, well, God has used people on both sides of the issue, so the issue doesn't really matter. We cannot say, God has used people on both sides of the issue, so who am I to judge? That would be like saying, you know, I, you drove down the highway going the wrong way against traffic and somehow miraculously did not get into an accident, so go do it again. Don't do it again, is what we're saying. That's a really bad idea. Just because God can do amazing things when people are wrong does not mean that we just keep following the wrong path. But listen to me clearly. 
But God has revealed about truth is given to us in his word, and God has revealed the truth about spiritual gifts. When it comes to matters of debate, controversy, and doctrine, we can go to Scripture to find our answers. We must be willing to be discerning. We must be courageous enough to look at the evidence. So, number three, the practical ramifications of these two views. We're not talking about something rhetorical this evening or theoretical here, are we? We're talking about a debate over, we're really not talking about a debate over how many angels dance on the head of a pin. This is not a small debate. This is a big deal. And these two competing views also have two very different practices within the church. And this is an issue having a major impact in our world right now. If you didn't already know, there are people right now who claim to be performing miracles in God's name. There are people right now who claim to be apostles and prophets. There are people right now who claim to speak in a prayer-like or an angelic language. Are they actually speaking and doing these things from the Holy Spirit? In the most bizarre expressions, you have people who claim to be slain in the Spirit. Who hasn't seen Benny Hind wave his handkerchief or his suit jacket and cause a bunch of people to fall down. You've seen that? That's a bizarre one. In other bizarre instances, you have people breaking out into uncontrollable laughter that they call holy laughter. In fact, there was a time, you can look it up, there was something called the Toronto Blessing in Toronto, Canada, that spread throughout the churches. It was a laughing revival or the barking revival. It made its way to America, and guess where it found its roots in America? You ready for this? Melbourne, Florida. That was a surprise to me, but it's true. You can look it up. The barking revival of Toronto made its way to Melbourne, Florida. The location of it was now Calvary Chapel. It was a former ministry at that time, but that was the address of where they had a barking revival in Melbourne, Florida, of all places. Hits right close to home. There are faith healers, if you did not know this, traveling around doing crusades and claiming that signs and wonders are being done at their hands, including, in some cases, raising people from the dead. In fact, the group that writes a lot of music out of Australia, Australia uh, called Hillsong, had one of their songwriters, had one of their children actually tragically pass away. And they called on all of those who followed them and sang their songs to call for the resurrection of that two-year-old from the dead. Unfortunately, that two-year-old did not get raised from the dead, but they just kind of washed on and moved on. But that's part of their belief. Faith healers and prosperity preacher promises miracles. There are those who will say, have a seed thought. Sow something in and you'll get something back. This is a billion dollar a year industry annually. They operate this racket on your television screens and have been doing so for five days. Worst of all, they do it with the tacit acceptance as though this is Christian television. Now, this isn't rhetorical. The practical ramifications are not theoretical. This is happening. The claims cannot be ignored. And if this really represents the work of the Holy Spirit, if this actually is the Holy Spirit, we should pay attention. Should we not? 
If this is legitimately the work of the Holy Spirit, we would be wrong to oppose it. But if these claims are false, then they represent something destructive to the church. True shepherds would then be wrong if they did not oppose it. If we really believe these things are not from the Holy Spirit, we as Christians are tasked to mark them, warn about them, and avoid them. If it is the work of the Holy Spirit, again, we are wrong to oppose it. If it is not the work of the Holy Spirit, it is a fraud, and we are wrong to not oppose it. This, the beliefs of continuationism really opens yourself up to entertain some things that cessationists won't even entertain to be legitimate. There's nothing praiseworthy to keeping an open mind on something your mind is supposed to be closed to. There's nothing praiseworthy about pondering about something that might be true if the Bible's already told you it's not. This is very real. By the way, is this not the very trap that Eve fell into? You know, you just open your mind to this a little bit. We have no interest in holding to a position that is just the product of personal bias or thought or experience. We don't have any interest in holding to a position that is simply the result of tradition either. We want to know what the Bible says. And all we want to do is do what the Bible teaches. If God says that the gifts are still in operation... I want to believe that. If an honest study of God's word would lead us to the conclusion that some of these gifts are no longer in operation, we must believe that. We are not trying to be hateful or divisive. We're trying to be truthful. That's all an introduction to point number four. Here, let me give you a brief explanation, number four, of why I believe cessationism is the correct view. And if you have your Bibles, you're going to have to be a champion at sword drills. But I will, I will put the references on the screen. And again, I want you to stay in 1 Corinthians 12 at the same time, because that is a passage we will deal with at length at a later message. But as we deal with a brief explanation, kind of a, a bird's-eye view explanation, I want us to address it with three important questions. And the questions are, really, what, why, and when? What were the spiritual gifts in the early New Testament church that were in operation? And let's not take contemporary experience and what we see going on in the names of these gifts. Let's go to the Bible and say, Lord, you tell me from your word what it is that they did. I want to know exactly what they did. Not what I'm seeing going on right now. I want to see in Scripture what were these gifts. And number two, why did God give these gifts? Why did God give the gift of healing? Was it because he means for all of his people to be healthy? Was it because health was a part of what would be given as a part of his atonement? Is the right of the believer to claim their health? Were were tongues given so that I might have a prayer language I can use if I don't know what else to talk about? Why did God give these gifts? And third, if we say that they have ceased, then when did they cease? Now, what often happens when people come to this subject is that they immediately want to run to the when question. And they'll say something like this. Can you show me when it was that the Bible says that they stop? 
Can you show me exactly when they stop? And they want to go right to the when question. But I would suggest that the most important question is not when, but what and why. If we look at what the sign gifts were given and what they really were in the first century, and then we give an honest examination of what we see happening in the name of those gifts, then no matter what they have ceased, if they do not, when they have ceased rather, if they do not line up, if they are not the same, we can immediately raise a red flag and say, there's a problem here. So let's start with the what and the why of of spiritual gifts. Many evangelicals, and I think most charismatics think that miracles litter almost every page of biblical record. They say, well, you open the Bible and it's just full of miracles. And that is not true if you're a true student of God's Word. There were only three primary periods in your Bible in which God worked miracles through uniquely gifted men. This is very significant when it comes to the conversation about spiritual gifts, sign gifts, and miracles. There were only three of those. The period of Moses and Joshua, that period lasted from Exodus to about 1445 B.C. through the career of Joshua and ended in about 1380 B.C., In other words, the first period of miracles lasted about 65 years. And you see some amazing things taking place. You see a burning bush that didn't burn, obviously. You see uh, all of the plagues of Egypt. You see some amazing miracles taking place. And then you see the period of Elijah and Elisha. Putting the biblical chronology together, we we know rather that they ministered from about 860 B.C. to until 790 B.C. Again, a period of about 65 years. And finally, we see the third period. We've actually been studying the Gospel of Mark, and that is the period of Christ and his apostles. This obviously began with Christ's public ministry and lasted until the death of the Apostle John, or again, about 70 years. Now, throughout history, God has occasionally, through biblical history, God has occasionally intervened with direct miracles. But in thousands of years of human history, there were only about 200 years in which God empowered men to perform miracles. And even then, miracles were limited to specific moments at specific times. Even in the miracles of Christ, we don't see Christ healing everybody in the crowd, though he could have. What was he doing? Why was that? Why limiting this? What is going on? What is the purpose? Well, The primary purpose of miracles has always been to confirm the credentials of a divinely appointed messenger to establish the credibility of the one who speaks for God. That's always been the case. This pattern first began with Moses, remember? God enabled Moses to perform miracles for one purpose only. What was his purpose? to validate that Moses was God's prophet and that Moses' message to Pharaoh was God's word. That was the purpose with Moses. And this continues to be the perfect, perfect, perfect purpose, rather, there's a lot of tongue twisters, throughout all of the Old Testament record. Look at Deuteronomy. You can open in your Bibles. I'll put it on the screen for you. Here's what Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 says. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your countrymen, you should listen to him. God's going to raise up a prophet. And you'll notice 
In verses 21 and 22 of this chapter, he says that the true prophet's predictions always come true. You ever heard, well, how do you know if a prophet's true? Well, in the Old Testament, you've probably heard what happens if they're wrong. That's from Deuteronomy. After all, Deuteronomy. But Deuteronomy 22 says, And if thou say in your heart, How shall we know the word which the Lord hath not spoken? When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken, but the prophet has spoken it presumptuously, thou shalt not be afraid of him. He's a fake prophet. That's number one criteria, by the way. Number one. The true prophet's predictions always come true. That's how you know if it's actually the word of God. So Moses was a prophet, was given miracles to authenticate his words. They came true. The prophets were to come. They were to follow him. If they said something, it had to be true. So in the Old Testament, only prophets and only those who spoke authoritatively and infallibly for God performed miracles. And miracles were their credentials. They would say, and then they would show. And the most famous miracle, even outside the Pentateuch, comes in the ministry of Elijah. As he is calling down, you remember, fire on the altar on Mount Carmel. And and listen to his prayer. Here's what he says in 1 Kings 18, verse 36. O Yahweh, the God of Isaac and Abraham and and, and Elijah, he says, Today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. What is his prayer? He's praying, authenticate me. I I have said what you told me to say. I have declared your message. Send fire. Why fire? Authenticate what I have said to be true. And when we come to the New Testament, we discover the exact same pattern unfolding. Our Lord, of course, was the ultimate fulfillment of the prophet that Moses promised in Deuteronomy 18. I'm going to send this one to you. And John the Apostle makes this point crystal clear in his gospel many times. John 5, verse 36, for example, Jesus speaks and says, But the testimony which I give is greater than the testimony of John. Speaking of John the Baptist, not John the Apostle writing John's gospel, but John the Baptist. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. So the works, what is he, when he's talking about works, what is he talking about? His miracles, his healings. Jesus came primarily, we're learning this in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus came primarily to be a teacher. And his works authenticated his words. John continues in John's Gospel, in John 6, verse 14, he says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, the miracle, they said, This indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. The miracles proved to them Jesus was this one promised in Deuteronomy 18 and other passages. John 7, verse 31 says another one. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, he will do more signs than this man has done. Will he do more signs than this man has done? Of course not. The answer again is, we have seen it with our eyes. John's gospel again. John 10, verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. 
If you're really the Messiah, tell us. Just, just tell us. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. So you see, Jesus' miracles were not primarily a tool for effective evangelism. The main reason the Spirit empowered Jesus to perform miracles was to confirm that he spoke the very words of God, that he was everything he claimed to be. On the day of Pentecost, a day of miracles, Peter reiterated that was the purpose of Jesus' miracles. Peter preached on the day of Pentecost and said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. You have seen this. You are fully aware of this. Jesus not only performed miracles himself, but you'll recall that he gave the same power to the apostles. And what was their purpose in performing miracles? It was the same. Acts 14 verse 3 says, Therefore, Paul and Barnabas spent a long time there in Iconium, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, words and words, granting that signs and wonders be done in their hands. Why were these signs and wonders being done? To authenticate what they were seeing, or rather what they were hearing. They saw what they were hearing. The miraculous gifts that accompanied the apostles were intended to confirm that they were God's genuine instrument of revelation, just as they had been with Moses, just as they had been with the Old Testament prophets, and just as they had been with Jesus himself. B.B. Warfield puts it this way. It's a long quote. Miracles do not appear on the pages of Scripture vagrantly here and there and elsewhere indifferently without any assignable reason. They belong to revelation periods and appear only when God is speaking to his people through accredited messengers declaring his gracious purposes. Their abundant display in the apostolic church is the mark of the richness of the apostolic age in revelation. And when this revelation period closed, the period of miracles working had passed by also as a matter of mere consequence or as a mere matter of course. Scripture leads us to expect something. Again, when people talk to this matter of sign gifts, they most often want to rush to the when. Well, you tell me when it ceased. And they skip by the what and the why. And actually the what and the why inform us that we should expect a close. Because there's a purpose that's tied to them. They're not just willy-nilly going around performing miracles, are they? They are attributed to these very specific times in history so that when God's word is revealed by way of revelation through his first his Old Testament prophets and then through Jesus Christ himself and then later through the apostles, this is the collected revelation of God that they attested through by way of miracles that we now have here. That's what we're expected. Scripture leads us to expect then through the what and the why the end of the miraculous gifts because of the unique role that the miracles have played and as validation of someone who spoke God's own words. But what about the when? Because that is what people want to know. 
Now think about this for a moment. This is a very brief journey. Far more could be shown and said about what we've said about this issue. But since this pattern is consistent throughout Scripture, it is reasonable to expect that with the death of the apostles would be the end of God's revelation. And with the death of those who spoke God's own words, the human capacity to work miracles would also end, just as it had ended after Moses and Joshua for hundreds of years before Elisha and Elijah came onto the scene. Sign gifts were closely associated with and attested to newly revealed truth, thus giving them a limited time span. And these gifts were meant to authenticate both God's message and God's messenger. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. How shall we escape, he's asking a question, if we neglect such great a salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his own will. This is something that had happened. Furthermore, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul clearly states that sign gates will cease when he says when the perfect time would come. This is one we'll look at at length next time in this series. He says love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Now we are alerted here to the fact that there would be coming a time when they would be no more. That is exactly what happens at the end of the apostolic age. He says in verse 9, for we know in part, for, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, that which is partial will pass away. Now the word perfect means total. When that which is total is come, that which we had in part will go away. He's referring to the total knowledge of truth. I believe this refers to the completion of the totality of the canon of Scripture. Now, as an aside, The contemporary charismatic phenomena, as we've already examined, does not match the biblical phenomena at all. Miracles. What was the purpose of biblical miracles? Well, the purpose of biblical miracles was to authenticate the human agent. Is that the purpose of contemporary miracles today? I would say no, it is not. What about tongues? Biblical tongues, and we will delve into this at length, were unlearned foreign languages. They were not Babel. They were not angelic speech. Prophecy. Biblical prophecy was infallible. You make a mistake, you're stoned. Martin Luther writes, and he says this, the visible outpouring of the Holy Spirit was necessary to establish, to the establishment of the early church, as were also the miracles that accompanied the gift of the Holy Ghost. Once the church had been established and properly advertised by these miracles, the visible appearance of the Holy Ghost ceased. That's Martin Luther. That was a long time ago. Jonathan Edwards writes, it was a long time ago as well, and says, Of the extraordinary gifts, they were given in order to the founding and establishment of the church in the world. But since the canon of scriptures has been completed, and the Christian church fully founded and established, these extraordinary gifts have ceased. Charles Spurgeon says the same. Those earlier miraculous gifts have departed from us. Here's what I can tell you quite certainly, even based on those quotes and many more I could give you. 
A belief in cessationism rests on the shoulders of some great church historians and theology teachers and pastors from yesteryear. A belief in continuationism is a very modern and new practice that you will not find quotes from men that we deeply respect and revere and their works written hundreds of years before. We just won't find them. Tells you something. After all, have you heard the expression, if it's new, it probably isn't true. But teaching continuationism ultimately undermines Scripture's sufficiency. Why? Because it opens the door to continued revelation. You don't need more than what the Bible already gave you. This is really the the brass tacks, bottom line issue up for debate. Do you believe that the Bible gives you everything you need for faith and godliness? Or do you need something else? In 1539, Martin Luther, commenting on Psalm 119, which is the psalm that just talks about the word, wrote and says this, God wants to give you his spirit only through the external word. Luther loved that expression, the external word. He used it all the time. God gave us a book. It is not subjective. It's outside of us. It's in words and sentences and paragraphs that we can analyze, we can read, we can study, we can memorize, we can meditate on. It's external to us. We don't have to wonder if that message in our mind is from God or not. We have a message from God. We have an external word from God. We do not need to rely on internal impressions. Luther also spoke and said, Let the man who would hear God speak read the Holy Scripture. There's no practical Christianity, again, apart from sound doctrine. Now, as we end, I want us to speak with you firmly as a convicted cessationist and give you some take-home applications. We've got to land this plane (laughs) at some point. Number one, don't overreact and downplay the role of the Holy Spirit. Don't allow the Holy Spirit to be hijacked by those who abuse abuse his name. Don't think, well, because so many people are saying this about the Holy Spirit, we just can't talk about the Holy Spirit. It's like, I appreciate Answers in Genesis and their fight to reclaim the rainbow. Because it is a biblical promise. Just because some misuse something doesn't mean they're right, they're wrong, let's claim it back. Bible has a lot to say about the Holy Spirit. Don't overreact and downplay the role of the Holy Spirit. Number two, firmly hold to your confidence in the all-sufficient Word of God. We may soon be in the minority. We really may soon be in the minority. Churches are going headlong into these beliefs because they will attract a bigger crowd. I assure you that we stand in a historic position in light of Scripture. Don't let go of the line. Hold it. Hold it firm. Hold yourself firmly in the all-sufficient, inspired Word of God. Don't budge. And know what you believe and why you believe it. Be able to defend this truth. All I've sought to do with you this evening is give you a few bullets in your gun, because you will come across this. It does matter. This is not willy-nilly coffee shop conversations. It does matter. Reject all forms of continuing revelation. This includes the favorite evangelical form, subjective impressions from God. Don't ever talk about feeling something. 
Go to the Word and allow the Word to dictate. But finally, and very importantly, as strong as we have been this evening, respond wisely to different kinds of continuationists. And there are different kinds. To the false teachers, who along with their charismatic practices deny the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith, don't be afraid to use the language of Jude and 2 Peter. If we were just in 2 Peter. 2 Peter calls them dogs. It's pretty strong. But to the charismatics who profess faith in biblical Jesus and a true gospel, graciously clarify biblical gifts by making a biblical argument for cessationism. It's a worthwhile conversation. Could they be misled? Yes. Could God use you to show them from Scripture the correct view? Yes. You would, be, you would, you would not like it if people painted with a, such a broad brush about a Baptist church and just threw you all in the same bucket, and all you Baptists are this way. You would not appreciate that. You'd say, well, I'm not exactly like everybody else. Understand that there are continuationists on the extreme, and there are some continuationists that are closer to us. Would we say that they're both wrong? Yes, I would say that they're both wrong. Some deserve a commendation from, uh, uh, rather a condemnation, like the ones we see in 2 Peter. They are wrong, that's evil, it's demonic. Others, we can graciously say, let's have a conversation. Let me show you from Scripture what I believe to be true. Be sure that you respond wisely. And don't embrace the cautious but open stance, ultimately. Don't embrace a cautious but open stance out of a desire for peace or acceptance with your peers, or frankly, because it's the cool thing to do. Be like the Bereans who search the Scriptures to be assured that it was the right thing to do. Did we cover a lot of material? Yeah, we covered a lot of material this evening. But we'll cover some more next time we're together in this series. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, Lord may it be, in fact, our, our solid rock. Lord, we don't need more than what you've already given to us. So often we mistakenly think that we need to. We, we need to find out something else. We need to uh, have a new nugget from the word of God. Lord, we don't need something new. We need something true. And Lord, that is found in your word. Your word is the word of truth. May we run back to it. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together as our closing anthem. Number 389. We're singing the fourth verse. My heart is leaning on the word. The written word of God. That's what Luther was referring to when he calls it the external word. The written word of God. Salvation by my Savior's name. Salvation through his blood. Let's sing together as we close. Mm -hmm.